1: NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com/earnings right now. netsuite.com/earnings.
2: You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. On this week's show, we'll look at what's better for the planet, running the dryer or using a clothesline. Well, the answer might surprise you. Plus, since the beginning of the pandemic, traffic deaths in the U.S. have risen sharply. What will it take to get those numbers back down? And finally, if Taylor Swift can't bring Gen Z to the NFL, who can? But we begin with the heat. The global temperature continues to rise, and scientists are beside themselves. Officials from NASA and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration say this past July was the hottest month for the Earth on record. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. certainly
2: is self-evident that the Earth is heating up. And what we find is that July of this year, The temperatures are the hottest ever on record.
1: And last month was the hottest September on record by far. This past June, the warmest June ever recorded. Yeah, we're seeing the trend. Let's talk with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Laura Williams, who covers climate change. And scientists are using some pretty unscientific language to describe the temperatures that they're seeing. If if your column is any indication, Laura, what have you heard?
3: yeah so um we've had dob bananas uh, we've had astounding staggering unnerving bewildering flabbergasting, dis- dusting, disquieting, dob smacking scientists have been really really surprised by um the the kind of the the level of heat that we saw in september compared to previous records
1: It is a bit alarming that they seem so surprised by this because they've been calling attention to climate change and climate change issues and the effects for years. Why did this catch them so off guard?
3: Yeah, it's just because it's half a degree Celsius higher than the previous record in 2020. And so when we see these records getting broken, they're not usually broken by that margin. And so it is a kind of a marked increase. And it looks like it could be. Some are saying an acceleration in the rate of global warming, which would be worry.
1: Yeah, I wondered was this uh, an an outlier? It was just this is a one time thing? There's something that caused it specifically, or are we seeing an acceleration? It's going to just get hotter and hotter and hotter in the next few
3: years. So that's something that scientists are debating. So there are two camps um, of scientists. Um, The first camp, um, and I spoke to a sociologist and he kind of terms these guys the accelerationists, and they are concerned that um, this is an acceleration. Basically what we've seen um, particularly this year is um, there are these sulfur dioxide emissions, um, which are, they come from like crew, like cruise ships and, um, you know, ships like taking all our stuff across the oceans and, um, they've cleaned up their act. And so we're seeing way fewer aerosols being emitted into the atmosphere. Uh, so that's a good thing for our, our health, but those aerosols have historically served to mask human induced climate change. because um, they Reflect the sun's heat back into space, and so the fewer thing, fewer of those that we have, the more solar radiation reaches the Earth's surface. Um, the, the scientists that think that we've seen an acceleration point to that trend of you know sulfur emissions going down, and point to the trend of you know these these huge temperature records that we've seen over the past few months, and say that it could be an acceleration. Um, now, I would argue that the other team of scientists, the observationists, um, are right in that this is just, a, you know, it's a few data points and there's there's lots of things that could be um, making this, you know, this the Earth a lot warmer right now, a lot of temporary things. So, um, of the September that we've just seen was 1.75 degrees Celsius warmer than pre-industrial temperatures. Now, that's a very scary number. Uh, 1.2 degrees Celsius of that we know is down to us burning fossil fuels. The remaining 0.5 degrees Celsius or so um, is due to a combination of different factors. And so it could be aerosols, but it could also be the fact that we are in an El Nino season, which is a naturally occurring climate pattern that warms global temperatures. It could also be that you know there was this huge underwater volcano, which held an immense plume of water vapor, which is a greenhouse gas, into the atmosphere um, last year, and that would be enough to temporarily elevate global temperatures for a few years. Um, it could be partly aerosols, and it could partly be the fact that we're we've got we've had reduced ice at the poles this year, so the more dark sea that's exposed. The more heat that is absorbed by the water.
1: Oh, there's a lot there. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but no matter which side they're on, whether they believe that this is an acceleration or they believe this is just par for the course, the observationists, if you will, is there a new sense of urgency now?
3: Well, I think that um, there's always a sense of urgency. And I, you know, whether it's an acceleration or not, uh the the overwhelming trend is to that the earth is getting warmer and that we are still not doing enough um to combat that warming and so if it if it wakes people up and is a reminder that we actually need to you know take some severe action to stop this trend then i guess that yeah there could be a a, a call for a renewed sense of urgency That urgency uh was needed all along <laughs> But um, yeah, I, I suppose that this to be a wake up call.
1: We are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Laura Williams about the quote gobsmackingly bananas heat, as scientists describe it, and as it's uh, listed in your column on the Bloomberg Terminal, Laura. It was a great read; very interesting to see how they are using terms that you might <laughs> you might hear among the layperson, such as myself. You don't usually <laughs> expect to hear from people who study this for a living. What do they believe this could mean for the coming winter months? Are we going to see a milder than usual winter? Or because it's an extreme, are we going to see a colder winter?
3: That's a good question. And I guess we'll find out when the data comes out. Um, But I think for now, October is looking to be warmer than average. Um, And I would say that with, you know, um, the fact that we're in an El Nino, um, that tends to make things warmer. It actually tends to make parts of the world. So I think Europe might be might be seeing a colder, slightly colder winter uh, if if the El Nino pattern holds true. Um, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised if we saw a warmer than average uh, October and November.
1: So there may be some disagreement about what these temperature trends are are telling us right now among scientists, but they do agree on one thing, and that there's an issue with political will. There isn't enough of it. Where does that stand?
3: Yeah. So, you know, I would say that the fissure between science and political will is is huge, Um, We need to be decarbonizing with far more urgency so according to the there's a a website the climate action tracker which takes stock of all of the the promises and policies of countries around the world, and then not a single country in the world is taking action that's compatible with limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures. Uh, The U.K. has rolled back some net zero targets. Germany's approved bringing coal-fired power plants back in line over the winter. U.S. oil production is running at an all-time high. It's not really how uh, you'd expect a country is reacting to a climate crisis to be acting.
1: Is that in part because of the geopolitical climate that we are dealing with right now, what's going on in Ukraine and now what's going on in the Middle East and what it's going to mean for heating fuel being shipped out to those areas?
3: Yeah, I think I think definitely the geopolitical, um, you know, environment is not helping. And we've also got a, you know, really high inflation, which is, you know, stretching people's wallets. And uh, whether we like it or not, we have to admit that, you know, sometimes net zero action is going to cost people more in the in the short term, in the long term, you'd hope that it would um, you know, eventually bills should come down if we we rolled out renewables enough. Um, But certainly in the short term, we're feeling in our wallets.
1: Have they been able to get any traction with this to get the attention of those lawmakers and those leaders who would be able to take the lead on this? Or are they being shouted down, if you will, or drowned out? by what is going on in the rest of the world and the the really urgent need in the rest of the world for things like heating fuel because of what's happening in Ukraine and Israel.
3: For sure. I think that at the moment, it definitely feels like, you know, the scientists are being drowned out just because of the urgency of these other crises. Uh, it will be really interesting to see at COP28 in Dubai in December, what kind of happens there, you know, whether we're able to, kind of come around the table and we, you know, set our sights on on more ambitious climate action there and kind of, you know, center ourselves around that um, or whether indeed, you know, the ongoing uh, conflicts kind of, again, makes it another kind of non-event.
1: All right. And we're going to watch it with you. Thank you so much, Laura, for bringing us up to speed on this.
3: Thank you very much for having
1: me. Laura Williams, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. She covers climate change. And coming up, we're going to continue this climate change conversation. We'll talk about what's better for the earth, using a clothesline to dry your clothes or just run the dryer. might surprise you. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion.
4: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
2: Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Okay, what's better for the planet, running your clothes dryer or hanging your clothes on a line outside? It might depend. We welcome Bloomberg Opinion columnist David Fickling, who covers energy and commodities. David, thank you for taking the time with us. Your column starts with this intriguing thought when running the dryer may actually be better for the planet. And this is all about solar power changing how grids operate. Bring us up to speed.
5: Um, yeah, sure. Well, I, I mean, this literally was a, a dilemma that confronted me a few weeks ago on a Saturday afternoon when I was, uh, I'd just done a, a load of laundry and it was a lovely day for putting uh laundry out on the line it was a beautiful uh, bright sunny spring day i'm in sydney of course so it's, uh, it's it's spring here at the moment um but then i am someone who regularly writes about energy and so a thought occurred to me which is if the weather is so good for uh for the sun sun drying clothes on the line it's probably also very good for powering solar panels um and uh, Australia is, uh, is is one of the most sort of heavily um, solar um, rooftop solar dense places in the world. Um, uh, you know, per per capita, we have more solar panels than any, any other country. Um, and so, of course, what this means is that in the same weather conditions, you're actually going to have a surge of solar generation hitting the grid, which is possibly going to be too too much for the grid. Uh, I had a look at the website of the the grid operator and it turned out that at that point the price of electricity wholesale in the the market was was about minus 70 Australian dollars about minus 50 um US dollars uh, per um, per megawatt hour so it was a, it was a negative price there was um you know normally obviously you have to pay for electricity but um but but this this was the opposite because there was so much solar hit, hitting the grid at this point um that they were essentially the market was was um, was prepared to pay people like me of course i was not actually going to get any money from this because of the way bills are structured but it was it was prepared to pay users to take the electricity off their hands so this this completely changes the uh the calculus of it because if you want to have strong grids and if you want to have also a uh you know a financially viable uh, renewables um sector paying into the grid Uh, You actually, you want to be running the dryer at at the the middle of the day. You don't want to be putting the stuff on the line because you actually want these imbalances in the grid to sort themselves out.
1: So the balance of power then in the most hyper local energy infrastructure within your own home, hyper local, Mm. that's got to be a challenge because you have to pay attention to that. You have to pay attention to how much is hitting the grid.
5: I mean, I should say hardly anyone is paying attention to this, um, and there's several reasons for that. Um, I, I've actually, I, I used to have solar solar panels on my roof at the, my current place. I only moved in um, uh, about nine months ago, so I don't actually have that at the moment. So it doesn't make any difference to my uh, electricity costs. I pay the same uh, the same tariff regardless of the time of day. Uh, that makes no difference at all. In addition. In almost every market, the, the wholesale price of electricity does not reflect the retail price of electricity. And the only extent to which it does is actually something that, in a lot of markets, is very anachronistic. I can get a, um, I, I can can get a, a, an electricity tariff uh, whereby it costs me less to run appliances at night. I get a cheaper. Um, off-peak tariff at night, and I'll get a higher um, on-peak tariff. Particularly, you know, at, at the peak in the evening, it'll it'll be the highest. Uh, now, it's it's probably right that it's highest in the evening, but actually, night is not really a time when you you want to be. Um, making it cheaper to get electricity because in, in places like Australia and other places like, you know, California is actually the the first market that really saw this and we've seen, seen it in Germany and other places as well. Uh, it's the middle of the day when the sun is shining most brightly uh, and all those solar panels are just um, pumping out electricity. That's actually the time when you really need to fix uh, some of these imbalances that are happening in the grid.
1: We are talking to Bloomberg Opinion columnist David Fickling about how to manage power from the solar grid and how sometimes running the clothes dryer could be good for the planet. Okay, so David, would it be then up to the consumer to adjust that imbalance that you were describing? Or is this just one of the growing pains that we're finding as more places are converting to more renewable sources of energy? Is this just part of it?
5: It's not going to be really for the consumer uh, to sort it out. It's a hard thing for the consumer to sort it out. The, the the easiest way you can you can fix it as a consumer, uh, but this will only apply to fairly affluent consumers. Certainly, people in Australia and California and Germany that w- would apply. Um, is of course to attach a solar battery uh, to a battery to your solar system. Um, the time, uh, the, the the toughest time. Well, the two toughest times for grids at the moment are, of course, the middle of the day, which we were talking about, and the evening, the, the sun goes down, everyone gets home, they switch on uh, appliances, air conditioning, televisions, uh, you know, uh, the, all, all, all manner of things. And of course, the solar that was there in the middle of the day is no longer there. Um, uh, within your own home home solar, uh, you know, home system, if you attach a battery to it, you can be charging it in the middle of the day and discharging it in the evening, and that that potentially works quite well. Um, But across the, um, you know, across grids as a whole, things much more ambitious need to be done than that. And it's and it's a significant problem. The, you know, we're seeing things like here in Australia, for instance, there is a a very big pumped uh, pumped hydro project being built at the moment, um, which essentially what happens is when there is too much electricity in the middle of the day, a load of water is pumped uphill to a to a lake high, high up on a, a mountain um, just sort of southwest of Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, and then during the evening when all that electricity is needed, then the, the water goes down through turbines like a standard hydroelectric dam. And it will do this day after day. And we'll, there are lots of places, I think in California, the same thing applies. There are lots of places where pumped hydro is 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 being used. And of course, batteries as well for dispatchable power will be, um, uh, you know, utility scale batteries will be more effective. But I think one of the problems that we're facing over the coming years is that the speed with which households are installing, um, are installing solar power is faster than, uh, than sort of utility scale storage solutions can catch up and, and dispatchable power, of course, dispatchable power by which I mean, power that you can switch on and off, um, you know, with with the flick of a switch, which of course is, is not the case with any renewable power. Um, Also not really the case with, um, it's not the case with nuclear either. Um, With dispatchable power, uh, you know, most of it is fossil, fossil fired. And that's a real problem, because of course, we want to get rid of fossil, uh, fossil fired electricity.
1: Right, and the, so it sounds like the two big things that need to be resolved would be um, managing the storage issue, the battery, uh, making sure that those can be not only portable but easy to acquire and quickly charged, and um, the infrastructure as a whole.
5: Yeah, I, I mean, one other solution, of course, which is again, a lot of this depends on the having the right market settings in place, and and regulators, I think in many ways have been somewhat um, slow to catch up on some of these things um, because because it is all changing so very fast. Um, but of course, one thing to bear in mind is is we're seeing surging sales of um, of electric vehicles. Electric vehicles, are another thing that should be sucking up power in the middle of the day and potentially could be used um, to discharge electricity in the evening but at the moment in most markets there is very little um you know regulation that would allow people to do that uh you know so instead we're seeing things like in in south australia one of the the states in australia which has a particularly high um you know volume of uh of solar basically the uh the the grid operator can switch off solar um rooftop solar panels when there is too much of it which is um something that's possibly necessary to stop um, to stop stress on the grid. But ideally, you want to find ways to use it. You don't want to be um, reducing the amount of uh, zero carbon power that you're, you're producing. You want to be um, using it more productively. So we're, we're seeing a lot of these teething pains at the moment.
1: David, this is just fascinating. Thank you for taking the time with us today.
5: <laughs> no worries. Lovely to talk.
1: Bloomberg Opinion columnist David Fickling covers energy and commodities. Don't forget, we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This is Bloomberg Opinion.
4: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
2: Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Now, since the beginning of the pandemic, traffic deaths in the U.S. have risen sharply. And during the height of the pandemic shutdown, speeding-related accidents actually increased. At the time, Pamela Fisher of the Governor's Highway Safety Association explained why. You have fewer cars on the road, you should have fewer crashes, but the behaviors that were happening out there, people were seeing open highway, open roadways, local roads as well, not just on highways, and they were driving at really crazy speeds and engaging in other unsafe behaviors. Well, it hasn't improved much since then. Preliminary numbers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention indicate 46,020 people died in accidents involving motor vehicles in 2022. That's down just a bit from 2021, but still... 18% more than in 2019. Let's look at what's happening. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Justin Fox covers business and joins me now. Justin, you have voluminous amounts of data and some really nifty, helpful charts to kind of guide us as to why all of this is happening. And you were even able to use this information to eliminate some of the candidates for what is causing this. But what is the problem? Well, yeah, I mean, when
6: you bring this up, that traffic fatalities are up in the u.s and there's been a big jump since 2019 but they'd already started rising around i don't know 2015 or so and a lot of times people bring up smartphones or just the pandemic but if you compare the u.s to other rich countries i, I made a chart of the u.s france germany canada australia and the uk none of the rest of them have had this stall in the improvement in traffic facilities like the U S has there in all those countries, they've kept going down in the U S they stopped going down about a decade ago and they've really gone up significantly over the past few years. So, okay. What's different about the U S from these places. And one thing that's been brought up is we have these gigantic, um, pickup trucks and SUVs that are, you know, really safe if you're in them and get in a crash, but not so great for people in the other cars and especially for pedestrians. I think there's some really big issues with the really high bumper pickups and SUVs being extreme pedestrian risk because they just, you you can't see what you're doing as well. So there's some research on that and the thought that maybe some percentage of the increase, 10%, something like that is caused by the bigger And so that lane leaves. okay, well, what happened in the US since 2019 that didn't happen in other places? And obviously, it was this sort of national um, conflict rethinking argument about the role of the police, Um, you know, especially in the wake of George Floyd's murder, although obviously, this discussion had been going on for longer, you can sort of date it really coming to the fore to, you know, Ferguson back in, which I think was the end of 2014 um, and and it if you look, you know there there aren't great national statistics on police stops for traffic um violations. there's you know, there's a poll that the Bureau of Justice Statistics does, and they're definitely down a little bit. But if you look at um specific cities, Uh, it's pretty, I mean, San Francisco is the champion, um, that and the San Francisco Chronicle was the 1st to report this a few weeks ago that traffic stops are down 94% in San Francisco over the last 8 years. Um, but you find in Seattle is
1: almost that much. You find a lot of other cities where they're down pretty significantly too. Now, you, you ascribe some of this, at least to that sort of conflict between police and society, uh, what happened with the killing of George Floyd during the height of the pandemic. Uh, but could speed cameras, red light cameras, those types of traffic cameras also be a factor where you have an, an electronic eye versus a human eye keeping tabs on how we are on the highway?
6: Right, those are much more common in um, most of these other countries that have had big decl- continued declines in traffic fatalities. We have some in the US, not many speed cameras outside a few big cities. Um, a lot of red light cameras, but actually fewer than there were a decade ago. And and that's something that there's been a lot of research done on over the years that especially the speed cameras um, seem to have a really pretty dramatic effect on reducing traffic fatalities. And it's, I mean, I i knew, I've written about them before, and I got lots of emails from people, and I got them again now that just Americans hate this idea. And, and I think the one way to think about it is we also, a lot of these other countries are kind of a little more reasonable about their speed limits, like Germany or something. You can drive really fast on the Autobahn in Germany. You just, if you drive faster than you're allowed you are likely to get in trouble and i think the uk has been really the toughest on on this and and has had a really amazing decline in traffic fatalities so yeah it's like okay we've dramatically cut back on the kind of traffic enforcement that we mostly do in the us and at the same time we're still really reluctant to embrace this other way of doing it that has been pretty effective in other countries it is i mean i will And I I haven't checked if Gavin Newsom has signed it yet, but California has legislation that the um, assembly and the Senate passed that would at least allow San Francisco and a few other cities to start experimenting with speed cameras. And I mean, there are like New York has tons of both. And, And I think in general, they've been shown to be pretty effective in making the city a lot safer than it used to be. Although again, New York has had a pretty big drop you know, not like 90 percent it's more like 20 or 40 or something um in enforcement and and an increase in in fatal accidents
1: and we are talking with bloomberg opinion columnist justin fox about the sharp rise in traffic related deaths and what can be done about it i want to get back to the speed camera the red light camera situation because you said something about how people just really aren't getting behind it um Anecdotally, I can tell you that when I would cover local news, local traffic issues, local neighborhood issues in the washington, d c area, if you are a driver, a motorist, no, you are not crazy, one hundred percent in love with those uh, traffic cameras. But if you are in a neighborhood, you know, take that driver out of the car and put him in his living room with the kids who are outside playing in the yard you want those traffic cameras in your neighborhood i've I've talked to many people who are actually lobbying petitioning to get a traffic camera in their neighborhood to slow people down and right and
6: that's like one reason why we have lots in new york city because drivers are in the minority here and the people who are worried about getting hit by drivers are in the majority exactly but that's just a really hard equation in a lot of the country and I mean, I don't. I, I do think there's some history of, like, the speed cameras being used by, you know, small towns in Texas to nab people without adequate warning, and because Texas is one of the states that the legislatures outright banned them. I think there are nine states that have banned speed cameras and eight red light cameras, um, and then most states just don't have any law permitting them, and therefore don't really have any. But then there are, like, Maryland has tons. I don't know. I I I just think American motorists, and I get it because so many people are so dependent on their cars to do everything sure. in their lives. But American motorists are the most entitled people in the world. Like when they're thinking <laughs> in car thought, sometimes when they get out of the car and realize, oh, I live in a neighborhood where the cars drive through, then they can change that. But just the the knee jerk reaction from people, uh, you know, I I I don't think the enforcement should be unreasonable and the speed limits should be reasonable, but. Uh, yeah, why not have automated enforcement rather because it, it has been shown pretty clearly. There was a really interesting, very recent um study done using data from Lyft and Lyft drivers in Florida, where they could, because of Lyft's location data, tell exactly how fast the cars were going. They knew who all the drivers were, and black drivers were significantly who were driving the exact same speed as white drivers, were significantly more likely to be pulled over and yeah with a with speed cameras you don't have that it's really it it, sort of police jobs are the kinds of jobs that are hard to hire people for right now i mean across the economy there's this big shortage of Young people, I mean, there's lots of them doing it, but the demand, there's this big demand and supply mismatch of um, especially young people coming into um, non-college degree requiring jobs and police is one of them. And so there's this sort of overall issue. And then I just think in a lot of cities, people feel like, yeah, do I really want to be a cop in San Francisco? It doesn't, they pay pretty well, but it doesn't seem like a high status job and all the police cars are 30 years old. So I don't know.
1: Justin, it is a great column. I recommend everybody check it out. Thank you so much for taking the time with us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Actually, Taylor Swift isn't the problem for the NFL at all, but she might not be enough either. Because for the most part, Gen Z couldn't care less about traditional sports. I want to talk about this now with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Adam Minter. He covers the business of sports and he joins us now. Adam, what will it take besides Taylor Swift for the NFL to win over Gen Z? They've spent years worrying about this. And one of
7: the things they're finding is that no matter what they do, overall, the interest of Gen Z in their product and in other pro sports, traditional sports products is declining. So they're looking and Taylor Swift, uh, they hoped, would provide that a uh, little bit of oomph and temporarily she has, but, but once she's gone, they're looking for some way to fill that vacuum.
1: So there was a little bit of a boost, but that didn't last. Where
7: does this indifference come from? You know, if you grew up like I did, uh, you sort of had your sports fandom passed on generationally. You watched the football game on Sunday with grandpa or you watched it with dad. And then you went to school and everybody was talking about what they watched on Sunday with grandpa or dad or mom or whoever it was. And maybe that was uh, inspiration to go and join the high school or elementary school football team. That's breaking down because everybody has their own screen at home now. And so you aren't getting what uh, people who study this call generational fandom. It's not being passed on anymore. People either have to find it on their own. They have to find their own way of embracing football, baseball, hockey, whatever it is, or they're just going to find other ways to entertain themselves. And increasingly, that's the case. And it's a reason for panic for the NFL, the NHL, and all the major sports leagues.
1: Does this also impact, say, the NCAA and those leagues as well?
7: Yes and no. I mean, yes, in the sense that, sure, you know, you're going to learn to watch uh, Alabama uh, with your parents who was a uh, an alum. But even so, you still have your own screen that you can sit on the couch and watch esports on. And we're finding that esports are incredibly popular for Gen Z, uh, you know, roughly age twenty-six and younger. Um, you know, it didn't used to be that way. If you're sitting on the couch and there's one TV in the house and it's tuned to the Alabama game, you're watching the Alabama game, not somebody playing, you know, League of Legends, you know, with somebody else
1: in Hong Kong. Is there a cultural or even economic impact that comes from the indifference? Right now, we're seeing you know huge media rights deals. For example,
7: for the NFL, you know the NFL is has just started this year a multi-billion-dollar deal. Amazon is paying billion a billion dollars a a year to show Thursday Thursday night NFL games. Um, that deal is going to last for years. But, you know, Gen Z is starting to age into its prime earning years. And, you know, the companies, the Googles, the ABCs, the ESPNs, ESPN, ABC are the same. Um, You know, as they start projecting out what these media rights deals are going to be worth in five or ten years, uh, they're going to look at these demographics and say, hey, wait a second. You know, Gen Z isn't as interested in this stuff as the millennials were or Gen X was. And thus, we're not going to pay as much. So it is a long term risk to their business models.
1: I was going to ask, how do you win over the next generation? But it sounds like they don't really know. They haven't figured that part out yet.
7: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. They're struggling. What, one of the things that you hear the league say and the network say is, well, we have to meet the fans where the fans are. Well, you know, that used to be at the one television in the living room or, or at the stadium. Um, it's not so easy now. Now you have to meet them on TikTok. You know, you have to meet them on other social media sites. Um, that gets harder. Who's going to create the content that attracts them? You know, uh, one of the things that the NFL is doing is they're starting to hire influencers, Gen Z influencers, people who are popular, you know, on these social media services. Is it working? You know, I don't think anybody can say yet. You know, you're not going to see certainly a Taylor Swift type bump from a well-known influencer on TikTok, you know, reflected in this week's TV
1: ratings, but maybe long term you will. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Adam Minter covers the business of sports. And that does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We're produced by Eric Mollo, and you can find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal. We're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines just ahead. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg.
3: The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, c COA and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit bloomberglive.com slash 2024
6: to learn more.